Lord, we ask you to bless this evening as we look at your word. We thank you for your loving care for us and that you share with us your thoughts and, and we can understand you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 9, starting at verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man that was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night comes when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the, man, the eyes of the blind man with clay and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seen. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, we're going to find out by the end of this chapter that the problem with this whole miracle is that it happened on Sabbath. So this is why it's being set up, even though he didn't tell us. Uh, it says, as Jesus passed by, where he's passing by, we're not absolutely sure because the last thing we knew, he was in the temple. They were wanting to stone him. So we don't know as, as he's leaving the temple that this happens or if it's another day, a week has passed. We don't know. There's not enough there. So we, many, and I kind of looked it up in commentaries to see if they had anything and most of them said both ways. All right, some said it was as he was leaving the temple. Some said sometime after the temple. Doesn't matter. All right. And so Jesus saw a man blind from his birth. And this is somebody who's been never seen, never been able to see, and known to be blind by all the people that are around him. And Jesus is going to talk to him. Well, actually, the disciples start out first. And they say, Master, who did sin? And this is something very interesting. Anytime they saw somebody suffering from any kind of ailment or financial setbacks or disasters in their family, the first thing that I always came up with, somebody sinned. And because this man was blind from birth, they're going, did he sin or did his parents sin? Now, I think that's a really dumb statement on one side. Number one, it's they knew the book of Job and knew that things happened not necessarily because of sin. But even at this, somebody born, from, born blind, what kind of sin could he do in his mother's stomach? Or in her womb, technically. Now, uh, what, gee, Jesus, what did he do it was so bad in the, in, in, the, in the womb that he was born blind? So actually, they're thinking his parents did something. All right. Um, but the, this, the thought process of this is not changed much from today's world. Usually when people see something bad in somebody's life, the very first thing they've done, they will think is, what did they do wrong? And this is what the disciples did. What did he or his parents do wrong? That was bad enough for him to be born blind and be blind his whole life. We don't know how old he is. He's of age, it tells us. Um, later on and Jesus answer was a very simple neither has this man sinned nor his parents sin is not involved in this is what he says all right and we're going through the book of Job and we understand Job had that same problem his his friends all accused him of being a secret sinner because bad things don't happen to good people this meant 
this process was still going on in Jesus' day. Bad things don't happen to good people. Now we know when we look at our lives that you know, uh, most people will say bad things don't happen to good people unless they're the good person that something bad happens to. And then they'll finally admit, well, I guess bad things happen to good people even though they're probably not a good person either by, in, in the full definition of it. Uh, and, you know, and I've said this many times, you know, Job had a hard time and you know, we look at this and going, and people will say, why do bad things happen to all these good people? Well, the better question is not why do good things happen to bad, uh, bad things happen to good people, but why do bad, uh, good things happen to any of us good people or bad people? Because we're all sinners. We all deserve punishment, and yet God lets good things happen to us and to the rest of the rest of the world who's even worse because they're not even turning to Christ. And the negativity of this is so prevalent even in our world. You know, well, what what would they do? They must deserve it. And then heaven help us if we find that somebody actually does deserve the bad things that happen to them. And it's like, well, why do we want to help them? You know, they they cause their own problems. And I even struggle sometimes when I'm suffering, you know, consequences for sin, even praying for God's grace and mercy to to get out of it because I look, okay, God, I did I did stuff and this is why I'm happening and I deserve it, so I don't and I don't really feel that I can ask God for help when I know that I deserve it. Not a good place to be in. I understand that it's not a good place to be. But when I'm suffering from my own disobedience, I'm going, okay, let's just suffer. And yet God is looking to say, will I repent and move forward and seek his grace? And this is the great, beautiful thing. Uh, And he says, this man, neither his mother or his father or he sinned and he goes but this is that the works of God should be made manifest in him I want to show you the power of God because he's there now you know I wondered you know was there some sin in some life I don't know it doesn't really matter Jesus said there wasn't he says this is all there so that I can reveal my or God's power not my power even though he is God and this is the same thing that happened with Job. God, at the end of it, said this was just all done so that I could reveal my power and that you could go through this test, Job. Most of the time when we go through anything, it is so that God's power can be revealed as we stand firm. And this is exactly what he's saying to him. This is all done so that my power or God's power can be, re- can be revealed or his works, what he's going to do. And... So this is a very interesting statement Jesus made. And he goes, I must work the works of him that sent me. So in other words, and he said this many times, especially in the book of John, I can only do what I hear the Father say to do. Now I wish that my testimony could be that I only do what I hear God tell me to do. The relationship between Jesus and the Father was so strong (laughs) That he literally could say, we are, we are one. I don't do anything that he isn't telling me to do. And I hear him so clearly that I can, I can do it. And so he says, I must do it. He says, uh, while it is day, uh, I must do what he has sent me to do while it is day. For the night comes and when, when no man can work. Now, in our day and age, we don't, this statement doesn't make as much impact on us as it did back then. 
you know, they only had candles, some oil lamps, you know, lanterns or anything. We can light up the entire area, the entire room, and we can we can get work done in the evenings, in middle of the night, whatever. Uh, we have really gotten past this, but there was a time when, when the sun went down. You might light a candle for a little while, but it's hard to read by candle. It's hard to do work by candle. So you would usually go to bed when the sun, sun went down. And you got up in the morning when the sun came up. You know, maybe a few hours before, you know, get your breakfast and everything, but you really, the sun dictated your days. And since we've had the electric light bulbs and everything, sun no longer really dictates our days. Thankful to me because I'm a night owl and I like, I like being up at night, but, uh, but I would have had a really hard time back then. Sun's down, okay, I've got to go to bed. I don't want to go to bed. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not tired right now. Uh, I've gotten better now that I have to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to go to work because I have to go to bed earlier to get up. But, uh, but it says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And he gives light. And this light isn't necessarily a physical light that he's talking about. It's that moral light, the understanding of scriptures. And when we have him in our life, we start to understand the Word of God. We start understanding spiritual things. And we've all experienced that the longer we walk with Him, the more that light shines and the more we can see what's going on around us in a true sense. And I, I think it's so interesting. Now look at what goes on in, with so many of the people that are of the world whose mind and focus is not on God. Even Christians whose mind and focus isn't on God and you'll hear them say, well, what else can go wrong? It's been a miserable day. And all they want to do is gripe and complain. They don't understand anything. They don't understand that God is at work. They don't understand that all things work together for good. And all they do is complain. And I get to hear lots of it around the prison. You know, I'll come in. Monday morning is really funny to me because I'm going, hi, how are you doing? Oh, it's Monday. I'm going, yeah, it's Monday every seven days. It gets to be Monday. <laughs> You know, uh, and it's just like they're miserable because they have to go back to work. I think they're miserable just getting up most of the time, but because <laughs> you'll hear that all day, all week long. And then as you get closer to Friday, it's, uh, you know, Thursday, Friday's almost here. Oh, it's Friday. <laughs> and, you know, you, you start talking to them and they, their whole life is geared toward, toward the weekend. And then you ask them what they did for the weekend. Well, I went to a party and I don't remember anything thereafter. Oh, I'm really glad. You, you, lived for a, you lived for a day that you won't remember. And you wait for it, Yeah, you're waiting for it. You're living to get there. And then you don't remember what you did. I'm going, that is really a sad way to live. And I know other people have done, you know, most people have lived that way. Uh, and Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And this is a spiritual light, a moral light. And he really does reveal to us who he is and what he does. And we're told to be think on things above. Now that isn't saying think about heaven. It's thinking about everything that's godly. All right, so that when things happen to us, it isn't, oh my, what a terrible life this is, but God, what is it that you're teaching me? What is it that I need to learn? What am I being tried for? Whatever it might be, God, I love you. Thinking about showing grace and mercy and forgiveness. We think about him. He is the light that when we start focusing on him, everything looks totally different. At least it does for me. 
Things look totally different. Uh, on the occasions that I'm not thinking about him, I get miserable and upset, and I'm going, I don't understand any of this. And I'm going, God, I really need to know what's going on and why. You know, please help me. And usually the light shines and switches get turned on, and I start seeing things from a totally different pers perspective. And he, he is the light. And then the next thing he did was very interesting because at this point he has not even spoken to the blind man. He's walking by the blind man. The disciples ask him a question. He answers the disciples and the next thing he does is when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now you've got to picture this. He just walks down and he spits on the ground, mixes it up into a muddy clay ball, whatever. I'm sure it was more mud than, than clay. And puts it in the guy's eyes. This guy has no idea what's going on. You know, he's hearing some chatter going on around him. Next thing he knows, this guy, you know, probably hears somebody spitting. Doesn't know what's going on. Next thing, he's got mud being put into his eyes. Now, one problem with this is a really big problem. Jesus spit on the ground on the Sabbath. According to the Jews, if you spit on the ground on Sabbath, you're working because your spit might make a furrow and you're plowing. Now that's their definition of work. So Jesus, is, by spitting on the ground on the Sabbath, is violating their man-made rule about what work is. Then he takes and he makes, mixes it all up into a mud, which is definitely a small amount of work. And then he's going to heal this man on the Sabbath by putting this mud all over, his, all over his eyes. And it says anointing, and that literally means he put it all over, the, all over his face and his eyes. Now, I can imagine what this looks like. The poor guy's got a mud mask in the middle of the day, you know, uh, made out of spit and mud. So this is not going to go over well with the scribes and Pharisees that this happens. Then he says to the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, so washing, all these other things were, were work. Washing is definitely work. Uh, you do not go get a bath or a shower on the Sabbath because that is working. You're working at cleaning yourself. So Jesus is violating a whole lot of man-made Sabbath rules in just this one, uh, two sentences here. It's kind of interesting to me too that the blind guy, they don't indicate that he resisted or like yelled, what are you doing? Or tried to push it. You know what I mean? Like if all of a sudden someone comes up and just starts putting a bunch of mud in your eyes and everything, would you go like, what's going on? Get away. You would think. But I don't know. I just, it just kind of hit me. That he probably had the spirit of God in him. We don't know. It could also be that it's not mentioned. That, you know, that, that, oh, well, what's going on? He goes, this is what you need to, you know, this is what I need to do. He's been blind from birth, so he probably could get around fairly well without the, the aid. Or there could have been somebody else. Yeah, the pool asylum is near the, near the temple, so it could be. Uh, I've known some blind people who get around very well with and without their canes, and uh, they, know, they know the areas well enough, and... He was known to be blind. He may have had somebody who was willing to help take him there. Let's see, let's see what this is going to happen. Because we want to note this is that he said, go wash. Jesus nowhere in this statement said, go wash and you'll be healed. 
He didn't say, would you like to be healed? He doesn't say anything at all to him. He just puts mud in his, mud in his face and says, oh, now go wash yourself. No explanation as to what's going on. No reason for what's going on. And so this blind man is going to be challenged. Are you going to obey? Now, had he heard the voice of Jesus? Was he aware that it was Jesus talking to him? Again, we're not told. And it's possible he knew the voice of Jesus having taught in the temple and knew that this was who, who was talking to him and had enough faith that says, hey, I've been hearing this guy. He's, he's been uh, teaching these marvelous things. I'm just going to go wash and... You know, I know he's a healer, and maybe, maybe this is the way I'm going to get healed. I think that's what it is. He has faith because like, he probably did hear him. Yeah, so we don't know. We can only go with what it says. But I do believe there's, more, there's always more to the story than what's told to us. And it is quite possible he'd heard Jesus' voice. He knew, that, he knew that he was a healer. He knew that he was, you know, so now he's covering his eyes with mud and saying, go wash, and I think he had some faith that this is going to be good. And... And then it says, he went his way, therefore, and washed and came up seen. Now, what a miracle that would be for him. He just goes to the pool to wash, and the next thing he knows, he's seeing. And, you know, the one thing I think that's amazing, when we read these stories about blind people getting their sight, do you realize there's more than one miracle in that statement? They get sight and it seems like they already know what they're, what they're seeing. How long does it take uh, for a baby to really fully understand what they're seeing? You can watch a young baby discovering their hand. What, 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 what is that? You know, responding to mom's, mom and dad's face and starting to learn what mom and dad's face look like and see that face. Uh, you know, the first times they do it, it's like, okay, I, I know that voice, but I really don't know the face, and then they start recognizing the face, and they start smiling just because they see the face. But you understand what I'm saying? There's, a, there's more than one miracle. When Jesus heals these people, there's a great healing. When somebody's lame from birth, and Jesus heals them, and they're able to walk immediately after being healed, and they've never walked before, you know, we think about that, and they just get up and walk. Get up and walk. God, when he heals, does a very good job. And some other aspects are getting in there we never really think about. Somebody who can't hear and all of a sudden they're healed and they understand the words that they've never heard. God did some mighty miracles that we never fully comprehend the depth of. It would be one thing to heal somebody and it goes, okay, and he went away and six months later he could understand what was being said. But that's not what it says. It says he immediately heard. You know, the deaf and dumb were healed and they were able to hear and speak. How long does it take to learn to speak? If you've ever tried to learn a foreign language, you know that it takes a while to, to learn to speak. If you've watched a baby, it takes, you know, usually about a year for a baby to really start getting any words out and it's two or three before they're really understandable by, to most people. And yet Jesus would heal people and they'd immediately heal, hear and they'd immediately speak. They'd immediately walk. They'd immediately understand and see what, they're, what they were seeing. God's miracles are complete miracles. They're not partial. And this is one of the things that we can look at as we go through this. So this man it meets Jesus. Jesus violates all kinds of rule, you know, Sabbath rules. And then tells him to go violate a Sabbath rule by going to wash. 
And of course, he better get washed. He's got mud in his eyes. <laughs> so he, he's going to have to go get washed no matter what, at least wash his face. Verse 8 says, The neighbors therefore of, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, he, he is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore they said unto him, How were your eyes opened? And he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received my sight. Then they said unto him, Where is he? He said, I don't, I know not. <laughs> I don't know. All right. So after this miracle, he goes back to his neighborhood. He goes back to his neighborhood and his neighbors see him. And they're like all talking to one another and you know they, they see him and going, Isn't he isn't this the man who was sitting begging? In reaction to this, they're doing one of two thoughts, and you know, what would we think if we saw somebody who was begging, not begging anymore, and being able to see? Has he been lying for all these years? We know that that's part of what they were thinking. You know, what kind of scam was he pulling, begging all these years rather than going out to work, pretending to be blind for that long? And others are going, no, I know he was blind because I grew up with him and he couldn't play ball. He couldn't, could, you know, he couldn't do these things. I know he was blind. I don't know how he's seeing now. You can imagine the debate that's going on in his neighborhood. Not only that, they were going, you know, some of them said, yeah, that's him. And others say, no, it's just somebody that looks like him. All the debates going on here. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely him. That's the guy that was begging out there that's been blind. Nah, it's just, you know, it's his doppelganger. <laughs> you know, I don't know if they had that word back then, but, you know, it's just his twin. Somebody looked just like him. You know, and then he goes, no, it's me. <laughs> He's hearing all this go, no, it's me. I am the man that you think I, you know, I am the one that was sitting out there begging. It, it is me. And, of course, that, that brings up the questions like, they're going, well, who, how did you get healed? Who is it that opened your eyes? What were they really wanting to know? We want to know who to go see. If there's somebody powerful enough to open others' eyes, we want to go see this guy. We want to, we want to be part of a miracle. And some were probably thinking, well, I need... I need to, my finances taken care of. I've got a sore foot. I've, you know, my hands are crippled. I'm, I've got arthritis or all whatever reasons they were out there. Most everybody followed Jesus because they wanted to see some sign or get something. And this is where we have to be very careful in ourselves that we're not following Jesus to get worldly benefits. Now granted, God blesses us and there are oftentimes great benefits there's the peace that passes understanding, which is wonderful no matter what happens. But there's also healings and, and taking care of the blessings and everything that we get. And, but do we come to him for those things or we come to him to be our Lord and Savior and serve him and get rewarded in the process? And this is very important. I know many people, they're out there, they want the reward. And I've met so many Christians that all they want is the reward of Jesus can give them without serving Jesus. 
And you go, well, what, what do you do? Well, I haven't, getting, I haven't gotten all the stuff, you know, that I wanted to have, so I don't know that I want to be following, you know. I'm not going to bow my knee to him that much because I'm not getting what I want. Yes, I'm going to heaven because he's my savior, but they don't make him his Lord. Lord. And I'm not sure that there's a difference between this because all the scriptures say that he is savior and Lord. And I do not believe that we can make him savior without recognizing him as Lord. Now, we may not perfectly live out him being Lord and never will, but if we're not willing to serve him, then we really haven't turned our heart over to him because that's who he said he is. He says, I am the Lord. And this is very important, I'm, and I'm treading very closely to lordship theology here, and I don't want to cross the line. But there is a place where if he's not Lord, we really haven't committed to him. Uh, because a lot of people, is, you know, the term, you know, get their fire insurance. I'm not going to go to hell. I've got my fire insurance because Jesus died on the cross and he's in my, you know, I've accepted, I've accepted that sacrifice, but I'm not going to do anything more with him. I'm not sure that those people are truly saved. They may not have the fire insurance they think they have. Because it says that we call him Lord that you shall be saved in, Rev in Romans 10. All right? And so we call on him and we make him Lord. Now, for us in America, we don't, we don't like the idea of having a Lord, a master, somebody to tell us what to do that we can't just walk away from. Because in America, you don't like your job, you walk away from it. You don't like the government, you vote them out. You don't like the state you're living in, you move to a different state. That's not the way God is. He says, I am the one. You're either going to follow me or you're going to follow Satan. And that's our only two choices. We may think we're following our own ways and our own choices, but if we're not following God, we are following after the way of Satan because Satan is the reason the world is the way it is in the first place. So we have only the two choices, follow God or follow Satan. And we need to be looking at him and Lord. This man decided he was going to be obedient. This man told me to go wash. And I got my sight. And this, all the families looking at him and going, I don't know about this. And, and it says, and they ask him, who was he? And he goes, the man is called Jesus. And he made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go wash in Siloam. And I washed. And when I went and washed, and I received my sight. How simple is his testimony? I really don't know anything about the man. He... He put mud in my eyes, told me to wash up, and I got my sight. I think the important thing about this is when we are given something by God, when we get saved and we get something from God, we need to share that with people. Because that's the important part of a testimony. We may, we may take a class and learn all the perfect ways of presenting the gospel, but is it really a real experience with us? Do we share with people what happened to us? And I've shared my testimony lots of times, even around here. When I got saved at 10 years old, God changed my life. He took away my temper. He gave me a peace, gave me a love for God's word. And nobody's ever going to be able to tell me that I didn't have a change in my life because I know I did. Now, did I have a complete turnaround in my life? No, but God took a lot of stuff out of my life. All right. Now, it took him many, many decades to get the rest of the stuff out of my life. But there was a change, and I'm going to say this is what he did. 
When I first started telling people about Jesus, I knew nothing about what he did. It was very funny the first week that I was saved. I was telling all my friends and they asking me all kinds of questions. You know what? I don't know the answer. I just know what he did and this is what I did. Come, come get on the Sunday school bus with me Sunday and we'll, we'll let them explain it fully to you. And my poor bus captain stopped at my stop to pick me up, pick me up and there was like eight people there to go on the bus with me. All right? Uh, but that's how excited I was. I didn't know what I had did. I just told, I knew that my sins were, were taken away and I knew that God had changed my life. It, that is all we really need to be able to do for people to share what God has done for us. Then we, yes, we learned the, we learned the doctrines on it. You know, yes, I'm, you know, we're all sinners. We all need Jesus. He died on the cross for our sins. And I knew, I knew that I prayed. I knew that I was a sinner. And I knew that I had to have Jesus, but I really didn't understand a lot of it back then. You know, 40, uh, 52 years ago, I didn't understand a lot of it. All right. This man doesn't understand anything. He just says, hey, man told me to go wash myself and I got my sight. He doesn't even know that he's Lord yet. He just knows this man, name was Jesus, they, they were calling him, told me to go wash and I got my sight. This is his testimony. And then they said to him, where is he? <laughs> you, know, you got your sight. We want to go see him. I've got, you know, I've got a friend over here with a you know, broken arm. And you know, we've got this person over here who's sick. You know, where is this man that can give sight? And I love his answer. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where he's at. He, he's very honest. He's not trying to make it up. He goes, Hey, I was sitting outside the temple begging and the next thing I know, I was told to go, go wash in the pool and I did and I got my sight. I have no idea where he is. Wouldn't know him if I saw him because I'd never seen him. Uh, might know his voice. <laughs> That's all he knows. I have my sight because this man told me to go wash. All right. All right, verse 13 starts our problem. They brought to the Pharisees, him that afore was blind, and it was the Sabbath day that Je when Jesus made clay and opened his eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight, and he said, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keeps not the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a much division among them. They say unto the blind man again, What say you of him that opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents and had received, uh, called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we know not. Or who has opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words they spake to the parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, they should be put out of the synagogue. All right, so here's the problem. The Pharisees hear about this healing. 
They might, should be happy that a blind man can now see. He's not out there begging anymore. But because he got his sight on the Sabbath day, they're upset. It is so sad when we get blinded by our thoughts of how God will do things and how we should behave for God that we cannot rejoice when something good happens to somebody that doesn't match what we think should be the case. Somebody got saved while he was in the bar. Oh my goodness, how could somebody get saved in the bar? Because that's where God worked. You know, this person got saved, you know, you know, doing whatever. He wasn't in church. He wasn't in Sunday school. He wasn't even talking to the Christian. And he got saved. Praise God, he got saved. That's all that really matters. But we tend to do the same thing these Pharisees are doing so often. Well, this didn't happen quite the way we thought it should happen. I took an evangelism class one time and they said it must be done our way or don't do our program. Guess what? I left. I think the program might have been just fine. But one of the things, I've learned lots of evangelism programs and I mix them all together. Whatever, whatever God leads me to say is what I'm going to say and it may be part of this one, part of that one, part of another one, part of something that I've just read myself. Now, it doesn't matter because my goal is that they hear the gospel message and not be pigeonholed into some little, this is what you must do. And this is very important. And so they, got, they, they said it was the Sabbath day that Jesus made this clay and opened his eyes. Then the, priests, then the Pharisees said, how did you get your sight? You know, how did you get your sight? And he, and he said, uh, he put clay in my eyes and I washed. Very simple statement. But again, remember what I said about this. Making the clay, putting the clay on his face, and then him washing are violations of the Sabbath in the Pharisees' minds. And one of the hard things about this is when you look at the Jewish rules and everything they have, Jesus said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you work and on the seventh day you shall rest. That's all he said. The Jewish leaders from that point on had to define what work was. And they have written huge volumes on just the Sabbath rule because they had to decide, you know, how much, work, how much can you lift before you're working? How heavy can your shoe or boot be before you're working by, by wearing it? You know, how much... You know, can I pick up this pen? Probably. Can I go pick up a box? Probably not. Depending on, and they, and they have these rules of how much, how much weight you can pick up before you're working. How far you can walk before you're working. You know, probably how much you can talk before you're working. You know, they've got rules for everything about this. Uh, they've got rules for things like your little bottle there for your water. If you break the cap, you're working, but if the seal was already broken, you could, op you could untake the cap off because that's not working because you didn't break the seal. Uh, they have determined that turning on a light switch on the Sabbath day is working uh, because you're making the electricity work at that point. They got all kinds of rules that are beyond what God says. This is what they're judging him by. You, this man made, made clay, mud, mud, and put it in your eyes. Man, he's a terrible sinner. He worked on the Sabbath. You actually went in and took a bath on the, on the Sabbath. 
you're a sinner. This is their conclusion. And they cannot be happy for him for giving his sight because a sinner helped him and he was a sinner for doing what he was told to do in their mindset. And so as he's going on, he says, and it says some of the Pharisees said, this man is not of God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath day. He is a sinner. He cannot be from God. Others of the Pharisees were saying, uh, if he's not of God, how can he be doing these miracles? And it says there was much division. So you can picture this. Here they are questioning the, blind, the ex-blind man. The next thing, they're having spiritual debate on whether Jesus can be, be of God or not. Bouncing it back and forth, you know, saying, well, we know that this man was healed from blindness and people cannot be healed with blindness except God does it, so this man must be godly. Another saying, there's absolutely no way he can be godly because he just violated all of our rules. And they're arguing back and forth amongst themselves as a group. Now, I can almost picture the support the blind man, ex-blind man's like, uh, I thought I was being questioned and now I've started a spiritual, spiritual debate over there. Nothing is worse than people arguing theology when there's no reason to. And these guys are arguing. They're not even debating civilly. They are probably going hammer and tongs with each other saying, there's no way, what do you, what do you mean this? You know, and I love a good spiritual debate and discussion as long as it is a nice, friendly discussion. And I will talk with just about anybody on those things. But I've said over and over again, the minute somebody puts a flag on the hill and says, I'm going to die over this issue, which is what each side of these were doing, Nope, not worth it. You go, you go believe whatever you want. I'm not, we won't discuss the merits or, or demerits of what you have and we won't talk about the merits of what I believe because I'm not going to sit there and argue with you to the death because it's not that important to me. And one of the things that I have learned over the years of walking with God is there are very few things that are worth putting that flag in the ground and saying, I'm going to die over this. One of them is Jesus is the Son of God, the one and only Son of God who died on a cross for our sins and rose again. How, you know, the how-tos on that, not worth it. As long as you believe those things, it's fine. The Bible is the absolute Word of God and is true. And Jesus is the only way to heaven. Outside of that, there is not much that is worth planting a flag in the ground and dying over. Uh, and there, you all know me, I have lots of stuff I believe very strongly, and I will defend what I believe and discuss it very thoroughly, even with people that will reasonably talk about it. But I'm not, outside of those handful of things, it's not that way. Now, I wasn't that way when I was younger. I wasn't that way in high school. I was mean, nasty, and I was going to win every argument. I was one of those that put the flag in the ground, and it wasn't, it wasn't going to be you know, surrendered. And then over the years, I've learned most of it is not worth. All it did was hurt people and probably drive them away from God or away from being able to, to actually consider. Our love and our kindness is what's going to win people. Not sitting there and winning, winning an argument, winning a battle. We can win battles and lose the war for their life. We can win the battle and say, this is what it is, and maybe even convince them. But was it important enough to fight over and, and make them withdraw from God. These guys are fighting in front of the blind man that they're supposed to be asking him about. And they're going, no, nope, he's a sinner. He can't do this. No, he's, he couldn't have done this if he wasn't, wasn't a man of God. 
So finally they turn to him. And they, and they say, what do you say about him that opened your eyes? Now, I find this statement kind of hilarious in one sense. The Pharisees are trained Bible teachers. And they're turning to a man who would not have even been allowed inside the temple because he was blind, probably has not gone to Hebrew school to learn the Old Testament. And these guys who are trained turn to him, what do you say about him? I don't know if you understand the, the, I, how crazy I think that statement is. And his answer is, he's a prophet. He has no doubt. This man healed me. God is the only one that can heal, so therefore, he is a prophet. He is not a bad man who somehow managed to do something good. All right? So he goes, he's a prophet. Verse 18 says, But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind. So the people gathered around him go, Well, you know what? I don't even think you were blind in the first place. And so they called his parents. It is amazing thing that what happens is you may even know that somebody has been suffering, illness, whatever, and as soon as they are healed, there's always going to, people, going to be people that say, well, I don't think they were really sick in the first place. Uh, I know a man, oh, it's probably about 15, 20 years ago now, but he wanted a, the church to pray for him. He was on the heart transplant list. He was number three on the, on the list. And he was getting really sick, so he asked for the church to pray for him. We prayed for him. The next week he came to church, and he came running down the aisles, running up the platform, running around the church, and he was healed. He never did get a, get a heart replacement. Now, there were people that were going, well, I don't know if he was really that sick. He's number three on the list. You know, that's about as pr much proof as you could possibly get. And there were people who still did not believe that he had ever been sick. And I have seen this over and over and over again in my lifetime where people go, well, must not have been as bad or they just thought they were sick or the doctors misdiagnosed it and they weren't that bad, you know. There's so many people who will not who will do whatever it takes to deny the power of God in healing. So the Pharisees got this idea, well, you know, he was never blind in the first place. So they called his parents. You, you claim to be blind from birth? We're going to just talk to your parents. And they asked the And so they, they, they've got them in there and they go, Is this your son who you say was bl born blind? How then does he now see? So first off, is this your son? Uh, you claim that he was born blind, so how is he now seeing? Because we know, and implication, we know that the sinner Jesus is, could not have been the one that gave him sight. This is their implication. They haven't said it directly. Uh, and I love their parents. Uh, we know that this is our son. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he is, he's our boy. And we know that he was blind. That he was born blind. We know that he was blind from birth. But by what means he now sees, we don't know. Who it is that opened his eyes, we don't know. And then I love this. He is of age, ask him. <laughs> In other words, he's an adult. You just talk to him. All right. Uh, so they were, yeah, this is our son. 
We know that he was blind. But how he sees now, we don't know. Just ask him. He, he's, he's an adult. And it says, very interesting here, it says, these words they spoke because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had are agreed already that if any man confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. So if anybody dared to say what they did not want said, this is the Christ, they said that they would kick him out of the synagogue or the church, technically. And this has happened over the years, even in Christian churches. If you don't agree with every word of their church, you'll be excommunicated, kicked out of the church. All right. Uh, now there are things that may actually deserve being kicked out of a church, but not agreeing the Jesus, you know, not agreeing on certain things is not one of those things that is going to be the case. Uh, the Catholics are really big on that. The uh, Episcopalians, uh, the Lutherans are all big on excommunication, and there is a place for it. If somebody is going to be adamantly opposed to Scripture then yes, they probably should not be in the church. And I mean adamantly trying to get others to follow them. All right. And I've said this over and over again. Everybody in our church is welcome. Anybody in their church is welcome. But the minute they start taking and trying to get others, teaching false doctrine and trying to get others to teach, believe that false doctrine, at that time, they're going to be asked to leave. Because we do not need division in the church on key doctrines. I'm not talking about the idea of pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib or, you know, uh, things. But if they're coming in saying Jesus isn't the Son of God, uh, He isn't Christ, you can't believe the Bible and try to get others to believe the, the real key doctrines, then it's going to be, sorry, you are no longer welcome until you repent. You are now a teaching apostasy. You are not allowed in the church. And I've been to churches where I don't agree with every doctrine that they have, but you know what? I usually would get to be a teacher even in those churches, and those were certain things I knew I couldn't say. I wasn't there to co cause confusion, so if it was a church and they didn't believe in eternal salvation, I would tread very lightly on those verses when I hit them. I would not teach that you could lose your salvation, but I would not teach eternal salvation. I would just teach salvation. But if people asked me one-on-one, -on -one, I would tell them what I believed. And I would tell the pastor exactly what I was going to do. And when I was standing in authority, under their, under their headship, I would not teach doctrines that they did not agree with. I wasn't there to cause division. But I, would, I told them flat, flat out, if I get asked a direct question one-on-one, -on -one, I'll tell the truth. I'll tell them what I believe. And this is very important. Is Are we people that will stand for God but not cause division? I... You know, most of the time I spend in times, you know, churches that I agree with 90% of what they, what they teach. Because if I don't agree with a lot of it, I've got to get out of that church because I just can't hold my tongue that much. All right. So I'd have to get out of the church fairly quick unless I really, really like the pastor. And that only happened one time <laughs> that I stayed in a church where I didn't completely agree. So they go ask him because they didn't want to get kicked out of the temple. Now, or the, the, the synagogue, I do not know whether they understood who Jesus was. I don't know anything about it, but they're not daring to say, I'm sure he's told them about Jesus. You know, he's been home already. He's been in his neighborhood. He's probably told mom and dad, Jesus is the one that did it. And they know the reputation of Jesus and he's claiming to be God and all this stuff. And, and they are going, well, we're not going to say anything about this man, Jesus, because we don't want to get kicked out. 
because the synagogue was everything for the, for the Jewish people. Uh, it was their church. It was their place to gather together, learn about God, be taught. Probably it's not been uncommon for food to be part of religious services, so they're probably potlucks and Friday night dinners and whatever else they had. They probably had their events. I went to a Jewish synagogue one time, and they love crockpots, so they had the crockpots in the fellowship hall, and after the service, I was invited to come enjoy their kosher potluck, all right? Um, and it's like, okay, this is like any other church I've ever been to, you know, meet over here and go over there and eat. <laughs> uh, so I'm sure even in back then, it was probably the same thing, that there was activities and, and fellowships and everything, and they, you do not want to be kicked out of the synagogue because if, that would basically mean you're no longer a Jew for, you know, it wasn't that quite that bad, but it was pretty close. You couldn't go worship. You couldn't go participate in all this because you were kicked out. So they're walking a fine line. And many of Jesus' followers had to walk that same fine line. Do we claim that he is Christ and not be able to go to synagogues? Or do we say he is the Christ you know, or uh, uh, claim that he is Christ and get kicked out? Or we deny that he's Christ and get to spend time in the synagogues? This is what caused Paul all his problems. Because everywhere he went, he went into the synagogues first, preached Jesus as Christ. Now, when he was in Asia Minor and all through the, the Greek provinces and everything, it wasn't that big a deal because all the reputation hadn't quite got that far out about Jesus being, being uh, a problem. But wherever he went, he was followed by, by Judaizers who started bringing the, the message from Jerusalem that this Jesus he's talking about is a, a troublemaker and a, and a sinner and, and, you know, telling people not to follow the Jewish customs. And that was the accusation against Paul. This man is teaching that you do not have to offer sacrifices and, and follow the Ten Commandments and the 613 laws that we were raised up with. And this was a problem for them and problem for for uh, Paul and everywhere he went people would really reject him so he'd go to the Gentiles and some of the Jews would believe him and end up building a church mixed with Jews and Gentiles and move on I've always thought about this he only spent six months or less in some places and to about a year and a half and he'd build a church and he'd put somebody in charge of the church I can't imagine putting a brand new Christian in charge of a church now, I'm hoping that he took some of the Jewish people who had actually accepted grace and understood the scriptures because it would be very hard to picture some Gentile who's never picked up a, a, a Bible and knew anything about the gospel, you know, knew anything about God at all, being in charge of a church. But I also know that too many times we push too far away anymore and say, well, you haven't been a Christian for 20, 29 million years, so you can't be, you can't be a leader. That's going too far the other way. Or you haven't been to seminary or you haven't done this. It's very important that we balance because there are people who handle God's word well that need to be given opportunities to share. And there's some people that just need to get bold enough to share because that's a hard thing to do as well. Uh, I remember my very first sermon I ever preached. I was 15 years old. I got up. I had planned my sermon to be about... 20 minutes long I got nervous standing in front of a church full of adults and my sermon lasted about six minutes 
And I sat down. I was done. I said everything. But it was one of those, I'm done. <laughs> you know, it just went so fast. <laughs> uh, but that was my first one. You know, the first time I ever got to, to stand up in front of adults and preach. Now, I've done it ever since then, and I've gotten better at it each, you know, with each passing day and everything. But that first one, I was scared, and I, as anybody who's ever done public speaking knows, when you get nervous, you tend to speak faster, and what you plan to be out, you know, a long period gets condensed by about halfway or, or less. And that was my first experience actually sharing with people from the pulpit. And are we ready to step out for God? Are we ready to use people to be able to say, this is, you know, use your gifts. And we need to be able to give that ability for people to teach gifts. Mostly we do it through Sunday school classes and stuff in, in churches that are big enough to have multiple Sunday schools. You get lots of people teaching. I've had people cover for me during Bible studies. Uh, we may do it again. I used to have some people do maybe a five, ten minute devotional at the beginning of it and then I would do the, the rest of it. But doing little things to develop the gifts so that people can learn to be able to present Christ. And this is very important for us to be able to present Christ to other people and get bold. And the only way to truly get bold is to practice. Go out and do it. And, you know, when it comes to witnessing, how are you going to learn to witness, really? You can go through a whole bunch of classes, but unless you get outside the door and start telling people about Jesus, it doesn't matter. And you could, you could learn the Romans Road, John 3.16, the fish, the, the faith, the evangelism explosion, all the other different ones that are out there. But if you never go out and use them, they're not worth it. And it's just a matter of going out and sharing. You know, and start with what you know about them. What did God do for you? Just tell them what you know. Now, the, the demoniac man who was, was healed of the legion of demons that was cast into the pigs, he wanted to go with Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Stay in, stay in your village and tell them. Tell them what? You know, I had a bunch of demons and Jesus healed me. That's about what he knew. He hadn't been taught with Jesus. He had you know, some conversation with Jesus, but he did not know a whole lot. And Jesus said, no, you get to stay here. You're going to do more good here than you would following me. Why? Because he had a story. He had been healed. And whatever Jesus had shared with him while the crowd gathered up, that little bit of time with Jesus is what he was able to share with others. We need to learn to be confident in what we have learned from, from about God and from God and be ready to share. And then the Holy Spirit will give us much more to speak as we go forward. He'll keep adding to it. We get into the Word, we study the Word, we look at the Word, we get taught. But there has to be a time when we actually give back out to other people. Because if we do not become giving out, we become the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has all kinds of rivers and streams running into it. It has more minerals and nutrients in it. It should be a teeming place of life. But because it has no outlet at all, it is a place of death. 
And this can happen to us. We come to church every day of the week. We, we listen to messages every day of the week. But if we do not give out, all that knowledge will end up bringing nothing but death. And so we want to be careful with that. This man is going to give his testimony and he's going to meet Jesus again in next week when we talk about it, <laughs> when we finish it up. But he's going to finally meet Jesus and he's going to have even more testimony. But his testimony up until this point was, hey, I was blind and now I see. I'm happy. I really don't know who this man is, but if I find him again, I'm ready to follow him because I, I think he's a prophet because I can see. I'm ready to do whatever he says to do. We need to learn to keep our message simple to most people. Now, I've been around a long time and I can handle the academics and all of that, but you know what? Most people don't pay attention to the academics. Even when I'm in the academic world, they don't pay attention to the academics. Those people actually get saved by watching people with very simple faith walk through hard times. And this is where we're going to be the greatest testimony is when we go through hard times and God stands bright in our life and they're going, well, gee, this person didn't fall apart. If I had just lost everything like they did, I would have been falling apart. If my finances fell apart like theirs did, I'd be falling apart. If my family was going through all these trials, I, you know, I'd be falling apart. We stay faithful for God and people are drawn to Christ by our faithful walk. And I've said this over and over. If you've announced that you're a Christian in any way, shape, or form to anybody, they're looking at you. Trying to find out what, number one, what does it mean to be a Christian? How does being a Christian affect your life? And people are looking at it. They're looking to say, is there something different about somebody who follows Christ? The sad thing is there are so many people out there saying they're Christians whose lives are not changed by following Christ. And people are looking at, well, I knew it was a bunch of hooey anyway. Then they see some Christian that actually walks through the shadow of valley of death and they're going, hmm, there is something to this Christianity thing. There is something to following Christ. And then they get drawn to that. And this is one of the things that I know drew my dad. My life's changed and another man at work that he saw, that his life was very different. And he's going, this Christianity stuff seems to have something to it. Now, my dad had been looking for God for a long time. He was looking at all the wrong places before that. But he finally got saved finally got saved and life changed for him and life changed for me when he got saved because I could go to church more than Sunday morning uh, you know, and I got to have fun I could go to church every night you know you know three four times a week uh, my brother and sister didn't like it so much but I loved it because <laughs> they got saved after we did but I loved it because now you know, at 10 years old, at 10, 11, 12 years old, you don't have very many options to get to the church. You know, I had to go on the church bus. Otherwise, I wasn't going because my parents weren't taking me to church. Uh, but my dad got saved and all of a sudden our whole life turned, turned around and I was able to get to church a lot more. And it was wonderful. I loved it. What changes in our life? What, what do people see when they look at our life? We're not going to be perfect but they should see Christ as they go forward. Lord, we ask you to bless our time as we leave. Give us guidance. Give us understanding. 
Help us to see all that you want us to see. Help us to learn to trust you more, to seek you and to live godly lives that people can see and understand. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.